I mean, let there be a thousand blossoms blooming. So, you know, but I ain't spending any time on it. It is feared that the Prime Minister has gone. Fair shake of the sauce bottle. Well, again, uh, fair shake of the sauce bottle. Right? I tell you what, any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up the day is a bum. <laughs> G'day everyone and welcome to Cooked, a per capita podcast where we look at some of the weird, wonderful and absolutely batshit wild things that have happened in Australia's history. As always, my name's Shirley Jackson. I'm a political economist and the director of the Centre for New Industry here at Per Capita. And I'm joined by one of our research economists, Sam Ibrahim. Hey. And of course, we have Per Capita's producer and audio girl, Rebecca Connell. Hello. I'm so excited to welcome you all back to the second episode of our deep dive into Alfred Deacon and the occult. So if you haven't listened to the first episode, yet I highly recommend that you stop now and go back and listen to it because it was a doozy. Uh, Sam, Bex, how are we feeling about the Honourable Alfred Deacon so far? Haunted by him. (laughs) I've been eagerly anticipating this, like... For the past fortnight. Yeah, it's just yeah. so good that I'm, like, not alone in my, like, red-stringed conspiracy nightmare anymore. Like, I, I absolutely love this, that I'm not the only Deacon Truther anymore. This is yeah. uh, this is outstanding. Um, so we've heard a lot about who the young Alfred Deacon was and how he dabbled in a range of occult practices, particularly those associated with capital S spiritualism, the organised movement of mediumship and seances. But this week we're going to be diving full force into his experience with predestination, precognition and prescience. So this is part two of Deacon and the Occult entitled The Grand Prophecy. So when we left off, Deacon was finishing his legal studies, which had largely been subsumed by an apprenticeship in spiritualism, where he dabbled in mediumship, seances, spiritual healing and mesmerism, which is honestly the best sentence you could possibly say about any one of our prime ministers, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Um, But between 1876 and 1881, Deacon um, recorded in his personal diaries a range of experiences that set him on the path that would lead to the prime ministership. So during this time, he began to visit three highly practiced mediums who would guide him towards what our academic mentor in this series, Dr. Al Gaby, calls the grand prophecy, a path that Deacon would follow as best as he could for the remainder of his days. So unfortunately, little information exists on these mediums who would change Deacon's life, but he identified them as a Mrs. Armstrong, a Mrs. Cohen, and a Mrs. Sterling. Um, We really don't have many details about their life, but they were all, you know, they're all like domestic women who like sort of did readings on the side. They all had children. They're all like sort of middle class to upper middle class. Um, And my favorite fact is that um, uh, the latter of the three, Mrs. Sterling, advertised her services at her home in Crake Cottage on Stanley Street in Richmond every Monday evening at eight o'clock where she would charge one shilling for spiritual guidance, which, I mean, that just seems like a bargain at twice the price, you know? Uh, yeah, in this economy, yes. <laughs> Bring back the shilling. <laughs> so um, Dr. Gaby's study of Deacon's diaries revealed three core prophetic readings that would focus the mind and spirit of the future Prime Minister. There was a personal prophecy, which was given in fragments between 1876 and 78, and two key political prophecies, which he received in 1880 and 1887. And he would describe these in his diary saying... And I quote, To describe in anticipation the details of what is not but is yet to be is an evidence of the powers of prophecy. Do we know what kind of uh, 
spiritualism they were using to get these prophecies? Was it palm reading or no, no, yeah. So it was it was mediumship, like so communing with the the spirits and yeah, yeah, you know, uh, very much like getting the spirits to tell him his future. Right. Do you reckon they were cold reading and he was just saying like? They would ask him, like, what do you want to know? And he was like, am I going to be the prime minister? And they're just like... Yeah, no. So this is where it gets really interesting because um, uh, Deacon found it most enlightening that the prophecies would be corroborated by these three different mediums. So during meetings, he would employ uh, what he'd learned in his legal training to sort of cross-examine and to interrogate the sporadic and cryptic messages from the spirit realm. And apparently while it did occur to the Honourable Mr Deacon that um, perhaps these mediums might have compared notes in order to create a recurrent customer um, for all three of them, he believed in his own, and I quote, powers of observation in what I could only describe as a quintessential act of patriarchal certainty in his own abilities. So his defense was that like, he considers it for a moment in his diaries where he's like, Oh yeah, maybe they're all hoodwinking me, but he's like, but I'm pretty smart. I think I'd know if anyone was hoodwinking me. Like, I mean, they could have easily in their daily media meeting just been like, Hey, there's this guy that's very obviously trying to cross-examine us. 100%. Like, the spiritualist community was really tight at the time. So, like, it seems wild to me that he doesn't give more weight to the idea that these people are just, like, triple-checking with each other. And he visits them, like, months apart sometimes. So there's, like, plenty of time for them to have compared notes and been like, oh, he really responded to this. So if you do this, we're really going to get somewhere, you know? And also, like, there's no confirmation bias. Like he's not yeah. reading that, like, I want this to be real, so. Well, no, so according to himself, when he first, I'll, I'll get into it a little bit later, but when he does first get the political prophecies, he doesn't believe it at first because he says he holds no political aspirations when he first gets it. So okay. it's very much a question of chicken and the egg or if he's just like, you know, embellishing to, um, yeah. you know, make, make himself seem bigger. But uh, in May of 1876 is when Deacon receives the personal prophecy that shook him so. Uh, It was revealed that Alfred would travel and would commune with nature, which would have a profound influence on his life. And in particular, a later reading in 1878 revealed that an overseas trip was the form that this prophecy would take. And it was highlighted by Mrs. Armstrong as a trip that would be very restorative for his health. Crucially, it was also noted that his companion would be a white-haired gentleman and when he pressed the mediums for greater details and assurances of this, uh, they had little else to say on the matter. So the thought soon left the young Alfred's mind as he turned back to other pursuits. However, in September of the following year, he was approached by a Mr. Sidney Watson, an elderly and white-haired spiritualist who asked the young deacon to accompany him on a business trip to Fiji. So, you know... Proved forever. Like, clearly, clearly this is true. Um, It's not that, like, probably most of the weird units hanging around in the spiritualist society were white-haired old dudes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, the prediction that, like, there'll be an old man in your general vicinity. And maybe you'll travel with them. Like, Yeah, is really hard to disprove. Yep. But regardless, Deacon leapt at the offer and noting that the offer of travel with a white-haired gentleman confirmed the prediction offered by Mrs. Da- Ms. Armstrong, which he described as unimpeachable and inexplicable. Which I love. Like, he's just so certain from the get-go. Also, such a low bar for yeah, unimpeachable. 100%. Like, this he's is- a lawyer. Like, that's... <laughs> like, he knows what unimpeachable it's means. Like- and also, like you said, the spiritualist society mm. and community is so, like... 
uh, interwoven and, and connected. Like, they could have just known this guy. Like, there's a guy with white hair. 100%. Like, that's the thing. It's not like now where it's just like random people who were doing like tarot readings or like whatever. Like, these were all members of the Victorian Association of Spiritualists, which Deacon would go on to be the president of, right? Like, this is, is an organ. all of these people? What's that? Is he paying all of these people? Yeah. Yeah, well, a shilling to Mrs. Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. So 100%, this is a for-profit, you know, business that these these women are, are running. So at these daily media meetings, which I'm sticking with, yep. they're just like, there's this guy who will just pay an obscene amount of money no matter how many people we send his way mm-hmm. just every single time. He's the greatest mark of all time. Yeah. It is interesting, though, that um, Dickens maintained a really critical and sceptical mind in most readings, particularly where it was concerning his finances, because when he finished law school, he was pretty much unemployed. Like, he didn't get a lot of work as a lawyer. But uh, in 1878, when Mrs. Cohen declared unprompted that... Within two years, I should be ushered into active public life in spite of myself and forced into prominence. So, like I say, Deacon was, like, really shocked by this because he says that he had no political ambitions at the time. you got to remember he's about 21, 22 at this stage when he's, when he's receiving all of this information. But he increasingly came to believe in this political prophecy. So um, when he took his legal chambers, like when he f- sort of tried to set up shop as a lawyer uh, in 1878, he shared a space with um, a prominent uh, solicitor called W.K. Bale, who was a democratic firebrand for the time. And he became a frequent consultant for the 21-year-old lawyer. And he took this meeting to be an omen of the prophecy. So the, the, the space that he was sharing that he, he, he uh, managed to secure as a lawyer was someone who was like, in tune with the political um, realm. But my favourite thing is that he also took his general lack of success as a lawyer as an omen that it was the wrong path for him and that it was diverting him away from his destiny. Like, leaving aside for the moment that at the same time he was both the president of the Victorian Association of Spiritualists, or the VAS, and the conductor of the Progressive Lyceum, which was a kind of spiritualist Sunday school. For some reason, he didn't think that this would affect his prospects as a lawyer, despite the fact that he was clearly talking about it all the fucking time it's my absolute favorite like you know you go in and you're like so i've got this conveyancy issue that i'm really looking for like someone's eye over and he's like okay 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 have you consulted the spirit realm because like (laughs) there's a wealth of knowledge out there that they can tell us for the low low price of one shilling (laughs) you can see the future that's right but the legal advice that'll cost you extra that's where he jacks up the prices um, but his spiritualist leanings did lead him to some really profitable avenues as well. So it connected him with David Syme, who was the then proprietor of the Age newspaper. And he commissioned the young deacon to begin doing some uh, sporadic work, like review, reviewing uh, political works for the paper. And eventually he got a regular column in the paper. Like every week he had uh, a paid column that was um, largely on politics and goings about in town. Um but it also meant that Syme sort of brought him under his wing and he was really, I guess, kind of like a political godfather in that he instilled in him this lifelong commitment to protectionism for the fledgling colony and led to his alignment with the then very radical Liberal Party of the time. So uh, just a note on the Liberal Party, um, of which Deacon was now 
um, you know, getting involved and, and sort of really becoming associated with because it's a very different organisation to the one that we're familiar with today. Um, at the time, it had a really radical protectionist party bent uh, under the leadership of then Premier Graham Berry, who uh, I am now equally obsessed with. He sounds like a really fascinating character in Victoria's history. Um, and he was... Uh, he and the Liberals of the time who were in um, when, when they were uh, in power, they were accused of being outlandish, utopian and engaging in, quote, wild and communistic attacks on property, mainly due to Barry's attempt to introduce a Georgist land tax on the powerful squatters who, who had up until then dominated colonial politics in Victoria and especially in the upper house, which acted a lot more like the House of Lords in that it was an unelected, like... Um, uh, re- review house that was made up by rich landowners. Um, and he also uh, wanted to introduce a really high import tariff to protect local manufacturing. So at the time, the Liberal Party was committed to free and democratic self-governance of the colonies and the protection of the rights of working peoples of colonial Australia, which is a really far cry from the anti-worker pro-wealth ideologues that we're left with today. So it was into this environment that Deakin was asked to run for Victorian Parliament, which by his own account was an accident as he reported that the local Reform League arrived at the chambers to approach his um, chambermate, W.K. Vale, but he was unfortunately away on business and out of desperation they, quote, "...pressed me to undertake the forlorn hope of winning the seat." And the seat in question was um, West Burke, which stretched from Footscray through to Melton and Bacchus March, out to Blackwood and Gisborne, almost up to Kilmorn in the north, which for those not familiar with um, Victorian geography, it's like a considerable part of, of Western Victoria. It's almost all of it. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Like it's a, it's a really huge area. So these electorates were like quite bigger um, compared to the ones that we think of today. Like there were only, there was one Melbourne seat and then there were like three other inner seats, but they extended like halfway to Bendigo. Can I just say, what is it with heads of state, like Australian, American, from the UK, whatever, like that think that it's cool to be like, oh, I've never wanted to be a in politician. I never wanted to be a head of state, any of this stuff. I just stumbled mm-hmm. from step to step to step to step to be the highest office in the land. Yeah. And it's like, I kind of want, prime ministers and presidents to have wanted to do this mm. and not just kind mm-hmm. of Fell stumble into it by and mistake. fall their way. Yeah. Virtualist society <laughs> all the way up to prime ministership. I think it's that mythology that so many leaders throughout history have done like this grand burden that's been thrust upon me and I mm. so humbly, humbly accept. accepted it and, and, and led with grace. And yeah, these politicians that you're talking of, they, they kind of subscribe to that and use that as like a, a, a brand, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I think in Deacon's case though, like specifically, it's because it serves this narrative of the grand prophecy, right? Yeah. Like that he was just plucked out by a higher power and guided towards this. So it's worth noting that like most of the diaries that we're talking about, some of them are from the time, but a lot of the quotes are like him reflecting back on his experience as right. well, like much later in life. So I think that part of it is like a reworking of the narrative of his his direction to suit this this grand prophecy that he truly believed in. But yeah, I, I do wonder if this idea wasn't planted in him by the spiritualist and then it sort of took on a life of its own as he started down the path, you know? I wonder if as it was happening, he truly felt like the gods, angels and demons both were conspiring together to put him into this position of power. Or if, yeah, it was just 
after the fact that he thought, you know what, everything worked out pretty mm. well. Well, uh, there are enough of his diary entries from the time that do have him like questioning all this stuff and like really feeling the spiritual calling. But yeah. Corroboration, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But I do like that point that you were kind of saying and like you got this young uh, lawyer who's you know quite intelligent and, and has – some funds, mm, enough mm, funds mm. to keep going to the mm. spiritualists. And also he's like really into the spiritualist society. Like mm-hmm. he's in the leadership roles and stuff. Yeah. And they see this person who they can, again, plant the idea. What's that like? Um, you like that sort of manipulating him without him really knowing. Grooming? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Not, not exactly. Like, there's another word for it. Yeah, you know, right. I'm watching um, this new show called Miss Davis and they, they called mm. it something. But mm. it, it was on the long, long lines of, Manipulation, but it wasn't manipulation. Yeah, right. It's like I told you to do this thing, mm. and I told you that specifically because I knew you were going to do. Yeah, this thing, yeah, right? right. It's very psyops, so, but yeah, like, it's um, yeah, yeah it's, it it gets even crazier than that, right? Like because somehow. Deacon manages to win, right? So this young guy, 21, 22, um, and it's absolutely wild. But he was member for Westburg for less than two two months, right? Because he uses his maiden speech to announce his resignation due to the disenfranchisement of some of his electors in this small village of Newham. I believe there was 15 people who didn't receive ballot papers. And he said, because they weren't given the chance to vote, he cannot legitimately claim that he has a right to be in the seat. And he resigns, right? Somebody called the Australian Electoral Commission. And it's wild. Like, uh, and the worst thing is that he resigns and contests the bylaws election in August and he loses and it's horrific. And so he tries to run again the following year. There's a general election because it was a, it was a by-election that um, he triggered obviously and he loses that as well. So, and it's in this chaotic electoral period that he receives his next prophecy from Mrs. Cohen in February of 1880, who told him that following this second humiliating by-election loss, he would be in parliament again in six months. And this prediction was confirmed by Mrs. Sterling in May 1880. And it's here that I really start to feel that collusion and kind of to what you were saying before, where Mrs. Cohen and Sterling, like maybe they're just keen to bolster this dejected young radical, right? Like this is a guy who believes in the stuff that they believe in. And they're like, maybe it'd be really good to give this kid a push in the right direction. And yeah, Dr. Gaby describes how despondent and disheartened the young deacon was by these three successive electoral losses in like a period of like 14 months where he's running these ragged, like dogged, by election campaigns to try and get this rest this seat from the conservatives and they don't pan out as he hoped and it's really interesting to note that this is also where he receives the personal prophecy about going overseas and he starts to put in his mind he's like his health is wrecked because he's just been like running like out on the hastings like three those of us who have you know been around election campaigns know how exhausting an election campaign can be so he's had three of these in 14 months and he starts to see all these pieces falling into place right for the prophecy but for me it just makes so much sense that these three wives and mothers who are all domesticated women you know sorry domestic women in their respective middle class yeah domesticated is definitely the wrong word that makes them sound like livestock that was a mispronunciation um who are all domestic women in their respective middle-class households were just fans of the liberal cause and this charming young man who cared so deeply about issues close to their hearts 
But anyway, the vision proved to be correct because Deakin managed to retake the seat of West Burke in the 1880 dissolution a few months after his last campaign. And uh, he, he was subsequently elected at the age of 24. And he really swiftly moves up the ranks of the party due to being seen by Barry and the elders of the cabinet as a principled, com- uh, like someone who had principled commitments to democracy because he resigned over a democratic issue. And eventually in 1883, he's minister for public works, one of the like largest portfolios in, in colonial parliament. Wow. So, yeah, like regardless of whether this was just the work of the spirits or just a couple of really passionate women, the impact would be transcendental for the young deacon. And and he took his own election as preordination and proof of his own personal significance. However, it did not come without a price. In particular, this fourth and final campaign for Burke, West Burke, sorry, brought forth vitriolic and personal attacks from media and from his conservative rivals who mocked his spiritualist past, the creative works that he put out, all of his poetry and his plays, which never really got anywhere. And they generally decried him as possessing, and I quote, an illiterate, ignorant and impure mind, which is an actual quote from the Argus newspaper paper on the election campaign illiterate yeah like i just can't imagine the kind of toll that that kind of insult would have taken on someone who was clearly bright curious and really well read you know like he's literally the opposite of those three things okay those insults are like pushing it far yeah but i will say I would have had questions if the media just didn't question any of the spirituality. Yeah, 100%. Any of the failed poetry or plays, yeah, yeah. you know. What were they about? Do we know? What's that? What were, what were the plays and poets? They're about poetry wild. About? So his most famous <laughs> creative works was he believed that one of, so for one of his favourite authors was um, a guy called John Bunyan who was sort of like a, a, a bit like a, a C.S. lewis kind of like Christian fantastical writer um, and he believed that the spirit of John Bunyan dictated to him this story, The Pilgrim's Progress, which he like wrote and self-published and it's I've read excerpts and it is wild. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very out there. Okay, in defense of the journalists, yep. you see someone rising quickly through the ranks of government and you read their work oh, and this it literally makes you... This isn't like, where he's right. He's just a young kid. He's 23 years old at this point running for election of a seat. Like, he's not connected at this point. This was in his, like, just before he got elected. So I just think it's, like, a lot of... It's a lot of shit to heap on a young man who's just like trying to be open-minded and curious, I reckon. Um, But regardless of how hard this must have hit him, he really resolved to stay true to himself, his beliefs and his destiny. So following his election, he commenced a new diary, drawing inspiration again from Emanuel Swedenborg, that Swedish spiritualist that we discussed in part one. And he named his new diary, Spiritual Diary, um, dash personal and mundane, a title which Swedenborg had used for his own work, work and writings. But Deacon's version opens with, I am induced to commence this diary by the extraordinary prophetic information given to me this year and since proved accurate and by desire to ensure the absolute correctness of all details which I may hereafter wish to refer to or reason upon. And it's this aspect of Deacon that I find so endearing, right? Like the way that he's balancing his faith 
and his skepticism. So rather than adhering to like a blind faith in his beliefs, he's constantly talking about how he's interrogating them. He like really cross-examines all the mediums that he comes across. He even goes back over. That's why he starts like going into such detail in these diaries so that he can go back and rethink about it and re-interrogate the information he was given and how later events kind of play out. And I, I really see him trying to like apply as much like rigor to his beliefs as he could, where he's constantly reevaluating, reflecting, and interrogating what he heard, saw, or remembered. Yeah, if he was born today, I guarantee you he'd have like the spirit boxes and mm-hmm. the the infrared cameras. Yeah, yeah, and just yeah. like setting him up. Hundred percent. That's what I say. I feel like he's really trying to use the scientific method of the time, which is just like taking copious notes and then comparing them at different times. Like you really see him do it throughout his diaries. Um, And like crucially throughout the journals, he notes all of the unsuccessful readings and like who isn't a good medium, who's probably a charlatan. And he interrogates the successful ones a bunch to make sure that he's not just being led astray. But like clearly there is some selective parts of it where he's like, well, this is good, that's bad. But honestly, I don't know, I can just, I get a really clear picture in my mind of what Deacon's trying to do, where he's trying to be true to what he believes, but not blindly true, you know? And like, yeah, it must've been so crazy for him because he went from his lowest point where he'd lost three successive elections and had a legal career that was going nowhere to being a member of a bold and reforming government within six months. And like this was just such an unlikely series of events for the time that it really solidified his own personal belief that the spirits were guiding him if he can put his trust in them. And moreover, it was this success that made him so ready to hear his third and final prediction in 1887, this real grand prophecy as revealed to him by Mrs. Armstrong. So the grand prophecy was revealed over numerous sittings between 1883 and 1887 when he was elected, was an elected member of the Victorian Victorian Parliament and an important member of cabinet under Berry. Through these meetings, Deacon learned that, quote, Before too long, I should be officially sent to London to appear from Victoria before a tribunal which was not a court of law, but a gathering like a court, and that it would deal with the interests of Victoria, Australia, and the whole empire. I was to attend, to belong to, and to address a tribunal which she described as the highest in the land. It was to sit in London, and its consequence were to be very great. And this is like such a specific thing to predict that I I feel like there must have been foreknowledge of what was coming because eventually it proved to be um, prescient when Deacon was chosen to lead the Victorian delegation to the 1887 Colonial Conference in London, uh, which was where all the internal and external relations of the empire were considered and conducted. Like before we had uh, our own federal government, this was where all the colonies would, would go back to London to discuss all the, the different problems that were being faced throughout the empire. And Mr. Deacon made many representations on the operation of the Victorian colony and its interests therein. Now, there is a secondary dimension to this grand prophecy which sees Deacon turn from his spiritualist past to a new belief structure. 
The more convinced he became of his own destiny and providence, the greater the guiding force had to be that was guiding him. So throughout the 1880s, Deacon began to feel dissatisfied with the trivial nature of spiritualism and began looking for something, some more deeper universal truths, the kind that he'd been educated in as a boy in the church. Now, this reconciliation crystallized when he encountered the second and his most long-lasting attachment to the occult, theosophy. So what do we know about the Theosophical Society? Kind of skirts the lines between religion and spiritualism. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, more of Enochian magic. Like yep. It's the angels doing it all. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like the cornerstone of sort of Western esoterica, right? So um, the Theosophical Society itself was founded in 1875 by the one and only Madame Helena Blavatsky, who in my view is one of the three most infamous, insane, fascinating and horrifically <laughs> mystical figures of all time alongside Alastair Crowley and Rasputin. Um, for those who are unaware of Madame Blavatsky, uh, she was a thinker who would produce the esoteric mystical belief structure that like incorporated spirits, magic and ancient aliens that would inspire the Nazi ideology. So this was the foundational sort of belief system on which the Nazis built their ideology. Yeah, it's wild. If you haven't come across Madame Blavatsky, like it's worth looking up. It's a ride. Yeah. So at the core of her diverse and honestly confusing belief system is the idea of these root races, seven alien pre-human beings uh, or sort of races of beings described in her full in her 1888 book, The Secret Doctrine, which is like a three-time Brownlow medalist Hall of Fame batshit wild book. Like it's so out there. Was Hollow Earth in that too? Ah, uh, ooh. She touched on Possibly, that. yeah, because the Lemurians, I think, yeah. were the ones that were the um, – the, it's been a, yeah. been a while. Um, so we don't have time to go into this, like, no, deep just... belief system, but I highly encourage everyone to listen to the excellent episode on Blavatsky that the boys at the last podcast on the left did um, because this is where the Aryan race comes from and obviously has had a profound impact on world history. However, there's no evidence that Deacon shared this most extreme aspect of theosophical thinking, but rather he was attracted to its critique of spiritualism's, quote, proletarian view of the spiritual realm, which contained no higher phenomenon and advocated for no um, rich spiritual hierarchy. So regardless, he was an ardent student of Madame Blavatsky's work, recording his impressions of her books and in 1882 while reading her infamous book Isis Unveiled, a text which suggested that all religious movements share a common root ancestor. Ancient Egyptian. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, where the Isis name comes from. But anyone who's just like Isis. That's right, yeah. yeah. Not that um, Isis. And yeah, like while reflecting on reading this text, he wrote that if Blavatsky's theory was untrue, it was nonetheless so harmonious with my conception of what ought to be true that I feel bound to give it acceptance. These are words that he wrote. There's that confirmation bias I was talking about. 100%. There's nothing really proving this except my gut feeling an inherent desire that I really want this to be true. Yeah, that's, that's exactly how he's approaching this. And like... Like Blavatsky remains the absolute goat for blending real world scientific facts with like pseudoscience and esoteric beliefs. Um, however, amongst the comparative religious and pseudo historical anal- analysis, it sort of advocates this essential belief in the spiritual foundations of humanity and the certainty of reincarnation, which Deacon found really, really appealing. 
Um, so he spoke to these beliefs and he mused on the idea saying that if only we had one, if we only had one life, then the quote, disparities of conditions under which it passed are certainly unjust, end quote, and that heaven would be, quote, too easily won and hell hardly merited by a few years of earthly life. So here we really see Deacon for the true cosmic travel and intellectual that he was trying to be because while he's leaving no stone unturned in his spiritual education, he's only taking with him the lessons that make sense to what he believes to be true in the world. So it is kind of like you're saying, Beck, like he he believes some things and then he goes looking for justifications that make sense to what he already believes. So like he believes that there are rank inequalities in the material world. So it seems ridiculous that some people would be eternally punished for being born in unfortunate circumstances and reincarnation makes a lot of sense to him. He believes that there is more to life than what we see, but he rejects the smaller petty spiritualism in favor of a higher calling. He sees the inconsistencies of Orthodox Christianity and the operations of the material church. So he searches for a higher power in a way that doesn't corrupt his journey. Like, I really see him creating this patchwork quilt of spiritual beliefs. And honestly, I, I think it's really fascinating that he doesn't just take what he is taught as a child, but tries to interrogate it in a range of different, like, areas and through a range of different belief systems. His total rejection of spiritualism in favour of a theosophically influenced personal belief structure was epitomised when he started a new entry in his spiritual diary in January 1882, saying, Instead of the arrant nonsense with which I have filled the first part of this book, I will now try and put the remaining pages to better use, recording thoughts in the place of superstitions. Which is like my favorite self burn of all time. Like in like six months, he's like, well, well, that was childish. I've got a new truth to be advocating for, right? That is the sickest way of saying like, what we all feel sometimes, which is I was so stupid back 100%. then. I'm, I've grown now, I feel better, but I'm I love, smarter. I love that he's like, oh, all that spiritualism stuff. I was so stupid and naive. Now it's about theosophy, you know? <laughs> like he's just I like am, however, down. still spending 18 shillings a week That's on right. mediums. Now he, he really pulled back from the mediums here. Um, and like, yeah, I think this really captures it because he follows up that entry with a quotation from St. Augustine who was a 6th century monk and religious mm. scholar who said, What is now called the Christian religion has existed amongst the ancients and was not absent from the beginning of the human race until Christ came in the flesh, from which time the true religion already existed and begun to be called Christian following his arrival. I hadn't heard that quote before. That's actually really interesting. It's really, it's really fucking Gnostic and I really, yeah. Uh, I, I've, I've done some stuff on... Augustine yeah. before and mm. I loved that they were like um oh I can't remember what the Muslim counterpart was uh that's embarrassing but um yeah taking like Plato and mm -hmm. and uh Socrates and then reworking that in a Christian uh framework 100% um yeah I but I didn't hear him I I hadn't heard that quote and that's that's so interesting yeah and I had to look it up it was Avicenna I was thinking of Saint Augustine, who took Plato and early Greek philosophy yep. and then transformed retrofitted, re retrofitted it, yep. it for, for Christians, and then Avicenna did the same for Islam. Oh right! Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So, like, if, you, if you're interested in that, like, Absolutely. very very good reading. Um, and I think it really shows Deacon maturing into 
like he he takes like spiritual thinking to be his next great challenge and he tries to reconcile all of these religious spiritual and occult experiences into a personal creed and one that conforms to this grand prophecy right so on that same day he writes that after long watching and long weariness the day is coming to me the knowledge for which i have waited several years i have felt the imperative need of and for myself and all I could almost believe looking back that my guidance has been from the first providential and to this end. So this is him like really thinking like it was all scattergun, but it's all been leading to this moment, right? Like he's so convinced that this grand prophecy is what all of this has been leading to. So from here on out, his spiritual diaries take on a decidedly gnostic turn where he interrogates the spiritual basis behind the material realm and the guidance that is imparted by the higher power of God. In particular, he becomes more convinced of and obsessed with a direct relationship with God, which doesn't rely on any intermediaries, be they spiritual mediums or ordained ministers. And he becomes increasingly convinced of his own duty and destiny. His writings also become more apocryphal and archaic. So when he goes from speaking in the vernacular of the time throughout most of his diaries, all of a sudden there are passages like this pleading to Give me, O God, the faith in thee, and I can await in patience the uplifting of all other veils. Thy will be done in what it shall please thee to give me in the way of spiritual gifts, and enable me to translate into the terms of life, act, and idea, the inward inspiration which I may there derive. Which is just like... He's not even like talking to himself anymore. Now his spiritual diaries start taking on this, as Dr. Gaby notes, a, like a method of prayer that becomes very ritualistic. So he starts praising God and giving thanks for mercies that he has received before going on to confessions of self-perceived deficiencies in his character and petitioning for gifts and certainty that his duty and destiny will be fulfilled. That's interesting because it, Feels like a far more intimate relationship with the spirituality. 100%. That's it. All of a sudden, instead of like looking for scattergun advice from any of these, like, you know, just random spirits that are around, he really starts to see there is not only this higher power, but it's trying to speak to him directly, right? So he really wants this personal, direct relationship with God. And in October 1884, he writes that I trust and in trusting pray that I may further thine eternal purpose and be chosen as one of the instruments in working out thy will. Yeah, and following this in November with a plea to make me thy servant and servant of my race to grant me greatness and thoroughness of service, which, like, we're getting into really devout territory now, right? Mm. And it's here in 1887, en route to the Colonial Conference, that Deacon becomes resolved that the grand prophecy comes from a higher power and that from here on out he will act as the manifestation of God's will in the world. But we can find out a little bit more on that next time in our third and final instalment on Deacon and the Occult. What? Come on, we're on the edge of our seats. I know. He's like not even in federal parliament yet. Like it's so wild. And yeah, again, just want to give a huge shout out to the really amazing books that um, uh, I've read trying to do the research for this. So The Enigmatic Mr. Deacon by Judith Brett and of course The Mystic Life of Alfred Deacon by Al Gaby. And uh, yeah, a big shout out and thanks again to Emily and Gillian at the Royal Historical Society of Victoria who are a fantastic organisation that we're big fans of. 
And yeah, there's also, um, I haven't finished reading it yet, but there's a really great um, biography of Graham Berry, that radical reforming premier of um, colonial Victoria by um, a really great um, academic at UNIMEL, um, Sean Scarmer, who's one of like the great labour historians. Um, and yeah, I was really excited to see that he's written a book um, all on Berry, who just seems absolutely this wild firebrand in early colonial Victoria. Sounds like it's going to be a topic of future discussion. Yeah, oh, 100%, so. 100%. Like, yeah, and it's just really interesting to reflect on, like, how the Liberal Party's changed since this time, right? Like, in barely 100 years, it's gone from being this, like, really radical, like, pushing back against the Conservatives, like, building broad-based support for democratic ideals. And, like, yeah, there's all these documents of them trying to reform stuff in the interests of workers. And then in a hundred years, they're doing like almost the opposite where they're really trying to drive down wages and, 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 and really serve the needs of um, wealthy landowners. Yeah. I think that's where we sort of converge with the Republican party over in the mm-hmm. States, like mm-hmm. where that started and, and the, the progressive uh, sort of strides they made early on to where they are today. Mm. That's yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. But it's just so interesting that, in America, the Republicans still claim like Lincoln's legacy and Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's legacy, yeah. even though and they are like real radicals and progressives for their time. Yeah. Whereas I never see like liberals here claiming guys like this Graham, but I'd never heard of him before, right? Like they hearken back to like, yeah. I see what you're saying, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to Howard and sometimes to Menzies when it suits them. <laughs> but like uh, otherwise, yeah, I find that really interesting. That's but even in America, they sort of, don't focus on the fact that figures like Lincoln had the word liberal flung at them all the time. Yeah. And that was a bad word at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's wild. Really, really wild. Anyway, that's 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 another episode on our second prime minister, the the honourable and mystical Alfred Deacon. Um, thanks so much for listening. Uh, as always, if you want to get around us on um, your favourite podcasting app, you know, uh, like and subscribe, leave a review. Um, Beck, where else can they find us? Well, in terms of the podcast, we're pretty much everywhere besides Spotify. Um, so Stitcher, Deezer, iHeartRadio. Uh, Apple Podcasts, you'll find us there. We're also on YouTube if that's where you like to get your podcasts. And yeah, you can find Per Capita on pretty much any social media platform, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And yeah, if you can go to our website, if you're really interested in hearing more of our content and all the podcasts that we're starting to put out, you can get around us by smashing the donate button. You know, even just throwing a couple of dollars will mean that we're more likely to be able to keep doing this fantastic content and maybe come up with some new ideas. So thanks so much for listening. Get around us and we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. This show is a production of Per Capita, the independent progressive think tank dedicated to fighting inequality in Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was written and recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, whose lands were never ceded, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. Thank you.